Many of you know I used to be on staff with Campus Outreach, and I used to take a lot of heat when I was on staff with CO, especially with my adult peer friends, because I would always refer to seasons of the year as semesters. Everything was semesters, and my friends that, that had real jobs would say, hey, you know, in the real world, it's not semesters, bro. Like, it, we, it's seasons. Like, it's just normal. We, we have these normal times of the year. And, uh, and yet, for some reason, even when I went on staff as a pastor, August and September always felt like a new semester. And so I don't know if you're thinking about September and August here at King's Chapel in terms of semesters, but this church, like a lot of other churches, thinks about this time of year as a really important uh, time of year where we're starting new things, where we're starting a new ministry year. And so it's a really important time for us as a church to consider core commitments, vision and values. Where is it that God is taking us this year? What would it look like for me personally to become healthy and to grow? What would it look like for us corporately to grow as a body of believers, to make an impact here in Carrollton? You know, often growth happens best in a greenhouse. And that's the name of the the sermon today the gospel greenhouse. And that's because in certain environments, the climate is very harsh. The conditions that you might need for something to grow just aren't there in that ecosystem. Maybe there's uh, drought. Maybe there's too much humidity. Maybe the uh, pH in the soil is wrong. Maybe there's erosion. Maybe there's uh, the temperature's too hot. It's too cold. And so it becomes really hard to grow things in that particular environment, not so in a greenhouse. In a greenhouse, what can you do? You can control all the variables that are necessary for optimum growth, right? My grandfather used to work in a greenhouse, uh, and though he lived in Wisconsin, which is obviously known for its rough winters, they grew beautiful, long-stemmed roses every single day in their greenhouse. And they grew them all year long. They grew them seven days a week, every single month, month after month, day after day, these awesome, beautiful roses. Why were, why were they able to do that? It's because within the greenhouse, they were able to control all the elements, all the variables, and set them to prime. What, what would a rose need to grow? What time of day is the perfect time for watering? How much light does it need? What's the temperature that we need to set here in the greenhouse to make this rose grow? What's the pH level in the soil need to be? How much room do the roots need to grow? Now, I know that some of you in this room uh, have these beautiful, ornate gardens in your backyard, and you just love to garden. And I, I think that's pretty cool. But if you have that and you do that, it probably means that I also hate you. Because when I call people like that and I say, hey, what are you guys up to today? They usually say something like this. Oh, me and my family, we're outside and we're in our garden and we're just growing our own organic fruits and vegetables. Yes. And we are saving money on groceries and, and, and we are teaching our kids about botany and horticulture And they're just learning about gardening, and they're healthy. We are saving the earth today. How about you? (laughs) And I think, oh, the Wozniakis? Yeah. No, we're not outside. We're inside. 
It's pretty much PlayStation and Pop-Tarts over at our house. <laughs> so just back off with your gardening, okay? I get a little jealous because if I put anything in the ground, it's dead within 24 hours. I need a greenhouse, okay? And some of you may need one too, but here's my question. What would it mean for us as a body of believers, what would it mean for you personally to be a part of a greenhouse that would be designed for you to grow spiritually? If you were to design that greenhouse, what elements would you need to set? What variables would you need to put in proper order in order for you to reach full maturity in your relationship with God? What would that even look like if there was a greenhouse for growth? Well, what I want to suggest this morning and what we're going to talk about is that I believe that God has perfectly revealed to us in his word what all the elements are that we need for growth. God has given us every indicator. This is what you have to do to to set to prime in order that you would reach full maturity in your relationship with me. Even better than that, he's given us the keys to the greenhouse. And we're going to see that this morning in 1 John 1 through 9. So let's study together. In fact, as we read from God's word, let's stand together if you are willing and able, and let's hear from God's word this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And I, I want you to just listen as John gives us this word for intimacy and the closeness with which he describes the fellowship that he has with God. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You may be seated. Well, Father, we pray this morning and we thank you for your word and we ask that you would be with us. Indeed, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but not your word. It remains forever. It endures forever. So what we need this morning more than anything is your word to revive our spirits, to draw us into fellowship with you, and to remind us how potent and amazing and transformational is the love that you have for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So may your name be heralded and proclaimed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning. 
You know, the, the New Testament, when it was written, it was written in Greek. So you, you know that. Now, uh, most of you don't know how to write or read or speak Greek. So we have this little saying, it's Greek to me. Well, after today, you won't ever have to say that again because I'm going to teach you just one word. And you're going to know this word really well by the time we're done today. You're going to know this word inside and out. It's the word koinonia. And what this word means is to know someone really well, to know them inside and out. It's the Greek word koinonia, and it meant fellowship. So when we see it in our Bible, we see fellowship. When John wrote it, he said koinonia. It's the word that's used to describe the early church's relationships with one another. Their deep bond, their mutual respect and sharing and giving, their total oneness with each other in life and in the mission of Christ. It's where the early church found strength to face extreme persecution. It's where they turned when life hit the hardest. It's where they laughed and cried together, where they were fully present, fully loved, and fully known. It's where they found encouragement to keep going in the marathon as aliens in this foreign world, where the conditions of planet Earth were unfavorable and harsh to believers. It's koinonia, it's fellowship. And fellowship is a word that looks a lot less like pizza and wings and Super Bowl parties, and it looks a lot more like the people who are on your TV set, huddled up, getting ready to snap the ball, exhausted, huddled up together, arm in arm, and preparing for the next snap. Fellowship looks a lot less like men going to see a war movie together, and it looks more like those soldiers in that movie banded together in the foxhole on mission, preparing to face an enemy. And it can only be forged out of time and trust and being together on mission. This is a word that has teeth, that has grit. There's substance to this word, koinonia, because it's costly. When we talk about intimacy, that may make some of you feel uncomfortable. Intimacy? I don't want to be intimate with anybody except my spouse. Intimacy is simply closeness to another person with cost. It means there's cost involved. That's what intimacy is. Patience could be time, could be sacrifice, could be money, but when I move close to someone else and there's cost behind it, that's intimacy. And this word koinonia means intimate fellowship. It only shows up 19 times in the entire New Testament, but four of those times are here in 1 John 1, 1 through 9. So it probably stands that we have a lot to learn from this passage about this word koinonia. And here's the deal. Koinonia is one of those variables that has to be set to prime if you or I are gonna grow in our relationship with God. If we're ever gonna get to where we wanna be as a church, we need koinonia. You can have great sermons, and, and you can have a great children's ministry, and you can have a great plan for evangelism. You can have a great, you can have a great time in the word every day, but if you don't have koinonia, you might as well plant yourself in a desert and hope for the best. We need it. We're made for it. Now, here's what we're going to learn about koinonia. I'm going to give you four things this morning, and we're going to go through them pretty quick. And so they're real easy. 
Four things that you need to know about koinonia. Number one, you're made for it. Number two, you need it. Number three, you are terrified of it. And number four, it's totally worth it. You got it? Made for it, need it, terrified of it, but it's totally worth it. So that's the whole outline. You can be done and put that down if you want. Number one, what do we learn about koinonia? It says that we're made for it. What that means is there's something intrinsic in who we are that is made for community. And that something comes from God himself. So look at verse one up there on the screen. It says, that, that which was from the beginning. Now that's a long time ago, the beginning. Meaning before anything else was ever created, there was a that. Now what was that? Well, from verse two we see that that was a who. It was the life. The life was from the beginning. And not only that, but it's the perfect life. Because according to verse 2, it says it was an eternal life. A life that had never ceased to exist. A life that must have always had and will always have everything that it needs to perfectly exist forever and ever. Amen. It must have been all sufficient never been needy, dependent, or lacking anything in and of itself. This must have been an eternal, all-sufficient, within itself, perfect life. Whatever variables are needed for prime existed in this life before anything was ever created. So what else do we learn? Well, we learn in verses 2 and 4 that somehow, mysteriously, this all-sufficient, eternal perfect, existing, forever and ever, amen, life describes itself, characterizes itself in family names. So they don't use military names, Captain, Private, Holy Spirit. They don't use academic names, Principal, Vice Principal, Holy Spirit. This life characterizes itself with family names, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, And so John goes on to say in verse 3 that he personally, this is amazing, he says that he has come to share in something mysteriously deep and wonderful with this life, with this Father, Son, and Spirit. What they have always shared is what? It's a fellowship. It's a koinonia. That's the word in your Bible fellowship, but when John wrote it, it was koinonia, meaning intimate oneness. So this life somehow had this this respect, this mutual sharing and trust, this place of disclosure and openness and love and sacrifice within itself before it creates anything. Is that amazing? That is unbelievable. We have to understand that about God, that that was all true pre-creation. Bill Willits wrote a book called Creating Community. If you want to get a sense of what was happening here, here's the quote from Bill Willits, Creating Community. It says, throughout the scriptures, the Trinity, God the Father, Son, Spirit, is seen expressing a unique, affirming kind of relationship toward one another. They are seen enjoying, they are seen enjoying one another, encouraging one another, supporting one another, loving one another, deferring to one another. No, 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 not you, not, not me, you. You first, not me. That's what they're doing. 
and glorifying one another. If you get the picture that they have an ongoing mutual admiration society, you're right. Okay? Now, here's the principle. The principle is what does that produce? This oneness, this fully accepted, fully known, fully loved union that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit produce. Out of the joy it creates. It's contagious. It reproduces. It must overflow. And so this life decides to create. And what do they create? They create everything. They create everything. And so in Genesis, the book that means the beginning, that which was from the beginning, the beginning, what are they creating? They're creating everything. And they're saying it's good, it's good. And they're naming things. The water, it's good. The animals, the sun, the plants, good, good, good. And then in verse 126, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so you and I get this special title. We're image bearers. Image bearers of the all-sufficient, <laughs> eternal, all-existing life that's full of koinonia decides to name something an image bearer, and we get that title. So then, the only thing that's not good is 218, that we would be alone. Now, I understand that you are all very smart people, and I have belabored the point. And the point is this, that if there is anything that is not good, it's that if we are to be image bearers of this amazing, all-sufficient, eternal, perfect life, then what's not good is that we would ever be alone. We have to have community. We are made for community. And because we are made in the image of God, we must have it. We need it. There's something essentially true and intrinsic and foundational that God has always known, love and koinonia, that we must have as well. And so that's point number two. We desperately need it. If we're going to bear God's image, we must experience and know koinonia at the deepest levels possible. Let me just say, the most significant thing about any of you in this room today is not that you are smart. It's not that you are talented or good-looking. It's not that you are a doctor or a lawyer or a leader. The most significant thing about you is not that you are a mom or a dad or that you have smart kids or that you have a green thumb. The most significant thing about any of us in this room is that you are an image-bearer of God. And if you are an image-bearer of God, then you are made for relationships and you need community. We need it. And without it, we'll suffer intensely. So Adam didn't need relationships in this passage because he was a moron. He didn't need it because it was like, oh gosh, where'd I put my keys? Honey, oh thanks, I'm so glad I have a helper. Adam needed relationships because he was perfect. Perfect in terms of the way that he was the image bearer of God. He was the imago Dei. And not just any relationship will do, but look at the type of relationships that we're meant to have. Jesus says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then in 20 and 20, 22 and 23, he says, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. 
What kind of relationships does God want us to have? Does he want us to be Snapchat buddies? Does he want us to be Facebook friends? Is that sufficient for us as image bearers of the king? He's saying the type of relationship that I have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to be shared with you and you to share it with one another. This is a high call to Christian community. Not too long ago, there was a study. This is amazing. The fact is, if we don't have it, we suffer. There's this study that was done a few years ago by this Harvard social scientist. And uh, over a nine-year period, period, he looked at 7,000 people, and they, they looked at these people who were isolated and found that the people out of the 7,000 who were isolated were three times more likely to die than those who had strong relational connections. The study went on to say that people who had bad health habits like smoking, obesity, and alcohol, but had strong social ties, okay, they lived significantly longer than those who had great health habits but were isolated. So one pastor said this, that means it's better to eat Twinkies together (laughs) than to eat broccoli alone. So if you want Pop-Tarts, come on over. The researcher said literally, if you belong to no group but decide to join one, you will cut your risk of dying this year in half. In half, just by becoming a part of a group. There's this sense in which we need community so desperately that without it, we will die. We will atrophy spiritually. We were made to do life together. We need it. As image bearers, we have to do it the way God does it. Fully known, fully loved, fully present. Where you give and receive affirmation and encouragement and support and you defer to one another. Koinonia in our groups, in this church, must be set to prime in order for us to grow. And I can honestly say, well, I've been a Christian for about 23 years. And I can honestly say that I don't know that I would even be standing up here today if it wasn't for the fact that for the last 23 years, I have always been a part of a group that aimed at koinonia in some way, shape, or form. And it's been in those groups where we've gotten real, and there was the ability to struggle and to be vulnerable and transparent and honest I think about those groups. There were families that got divorced in those groups. There were people who had miscarriages. Some were diagnosed with cancer. Some had brothers and sisters who ended up in rehab or in jail. Husbands were sent overseas for active duty. Family members were arrested. We wept. People gave birth. We celebrated. But our obvious takeaway was this. Year after year, how could we ever made it? How could we have ever made it without this group of people? I don't think I could have. My question is, why would we ever want to try? Why would you ever want to try to do life without group? I think it's because of number three. I think it's because we're terrified of it. What keeps us from experiencing koinonia in our lives is that we're terrified of it. You might be thinking, I've got plenty of people in my greenhouse. My problem is I want to get some of them out. Um, You know, uh, this passage gives us a huge clue 
about what our problem is. Pick up in verse five. It's almost as if John anticipates our reaction. We hear about this glorious fellowship and uh, we hear that we're supposed to have it and it's almost that he anticipates we'd be freaked out about it. You want me to have intimate fellowship with a group of people? Uh, so much so that it would actually reflect the type of community that you have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have, have you seen the people that I worship with? Are you kidding me? Do you know the knucklehead sitting next to me? How am I ever supposed to share some of my deepest wounds and insecurities and fears with these people? They're the ones that caused it. You understand? Uh, the deeper the relationship, the more risk it has of hurting you and the more pain than it can cause. So my, my guess is this. My guess is that the reason we're terrified of it is because this room is filled with darkness. It's filled with people who have been hurt not just by your acquaintances, not just by your Facebook friends, but you've been hurt by the closest people in your life. You've been hurt by your brothers and sisters, by your moms and dads, by your kids. You've been hurt by the people you worship with. Now, I want you to understand that I believe that when John wrote this letter, he anticipated that. That wouldn't have surprised him that that was the case. And that part of the vision for writing this letter is that he would be able to proclaim this great truth. This is the message that we have from him. And we proclaim it to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship or koinonia, with him while we, while we ourselves live in the darkness, then we're living a lie. Because I want you to notice this, that fellowship cannot coexist with sin. There's no way for relational intimacy or koinonia and this, this uh, sinless, or this sin to coexist at the same time. And that's what he's pointing out in this passage. One or the other will have to go. This is how relationships work. I want you to imagine for a minute that you had a time machine and you were able to go back in time pre-fall to see Adam and Eve before sin entered the picture. What do you think the first thing that you would notice about Adam and Eve before sin entered the picture? Probably that they were naked, that they didn't have any clothes on. Now, the Hebrew word for naked in that passage means that they were actually completely exposed, that they were fully known. So it's more than just their physical, they don't have clothes on, it's that they are emotionally psychologically and spiritually completely known one to the other. That meant that Adam, as he kind of moved towards Eve, didn't have to have mojo. He didn't have to have any swag. He didn't have to have any bling. He didn't have to be like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. I'm the best thing you've ever seen, baby. That reference is for the uh, empty nesters in the room. And uh, so if you're in college, don't worry about it. There was none of that. There was no trying to, they were thoroughly real in each other's presence. This physical nakedness was just this manifestation of a deeper exposure that they had with one another. All of that is pre-sin. But what happens when sin enters the picture? 
All of that's gone in a blink. And we know that because of Adam's answer when God asks, where are you? Where are you? And what does he do? He hides. He grabs a piece of creation, fig leaves, and he sticks it between him and God. We do the exact same thing. We don't use fig leaves, but we use career and status. We use our kids. We use intellect. We use achievements. It's a piece of something that we stick between ourselves and God because we are afraid and there is shame. It has entered the picture. Now, here's the point. What's the point? Nakedness plus righteousness equals great joy. That's what Adam and Eve had with each other, and that's what they had with God. There was no reason to be ashamed, so they were fully known. No masks, thoroughly real, able to be in one another's presence with great joy. Think about how that feels to have someone know you so well that you don't have to hide. The opposite is true too. Nakedness plus sin equals abject terror. So when sin enters the picture, they cover up fast. In a sense, they didn't just put on fig leaves, but they were exposed. And so physically, emotionally, psychologically, they went from totally naked to putting on 18 pairs of long johns, 16 ski suits zipped up, gloves, hats, goggles. They were bundled up like that, okay? Like Ralphie's little brother in a Christmas story. And in a sense, here's what I want you to know. Every time you start a new relationship, that's how you look. That's how we look whenever we start a new relationship. Now, because we are, we are just totally terrified of this thing. But here's what happens. Here's this amazing thing that happens. When you approach someone like that and, and you meet them for the first time and you start to divulge a little, a little part of your story, something significant about your life, it could be anything. It could be like, hey, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, we don't garden very well and... Uh, <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin, and the reason I'm down here now is, well, my parents divorced. Uh, or you could say, you know, I failed a test this week. Or you might tell somebody, uh, you know, that you had a fight with your spouse this week. Anytime we do that, what we're doing is we're taking off a little layer, and we're handing it to them. And we're watching very carefully how that person does with what we just gave them. Remember, intimacy costs. What will they do with what we just gave them? How much will it cost them? to give us relationship back. And if that person treats us in a ma manner that's in accordance with the way Christ would treat us, love, acceptance, wraps his arms around us. I've got you, forgiven. And, and, and they treat us with nobility and honor and respect. They lean in. To that degree, we say, that felt good. I want to take off another layer with you. I want, to, I want to take off more. I want to get to know you more and more and more. But the inverse is also true. To whatever degree that you begin to divulge something about your life that's meaningful and important, and what you get on the other end from somebody else is they just can't get their head out of the phone, even for a minute. Or they, they, they hear what you just said that was sort of significant, and they treat it with flippancy or disregard, or, or they just kind of move on. Or, or even worse, they laugh at you 
or they make a joke out of it or there's sarcasm, guess what you and I instinctively want to do? Well, more layers, 10 more gloves, 10 more hats, zip up more ski suits. What I'm explaining to you is that this is relationships 101, okay? That love and koinonia, when we practice it in the gospel, it brings out this beautiful transparency and vulnerability that we are free. On the one hand, relationships are potentially incredibly corrosive. And they can exasperate things where there's shame in my life, where I feel flawed and broken or weak. But yet, there's this gospel promise, this hope, truth and love, because of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, that says, number four, it's totally worth it. Maybe it would be totally worth it. Now, here's what our passage says. That only the gospel, only the Holy Spirit can empower truth and love to labor side by side. Here's what it says. If we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what, here's what that says. When God moves towards us and begins to deal with us, he does not shirk the truth even for a second. He says, look, no darkness in my presence. There's gotta be truth. And so love, if, if this is supposed to be how we relate, then love demands that we move towards one another with boldness and courage, courageous truth. When I see brokenness, when I see weakness, when I see brothers and sisters living in rebellion, I'm called to move with truth. But we also see that we cannot shirk love, shirk love because Jesus is faithful. He is tender, he is merciful, and he is forgiving. And only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we do 100% truth and 100% love, which is what makes these relationships and this koinonia worth it. Some of you, you gotta think about it. You're great truth tellers. And you can walk into a situation and you can call a spade a spade and you can drop your little truth bomb and then just leave. They gotta deal with it, you know? It's not my job. Holy Spirit's job. I did my job. And some of you are just great acceptors. You're great at grace. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And you just sweep everything under the rug. So some of you are great at truth and some of you are great at acceptance, but it takes 100% of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see in Jesus' life to do both truth and love well. It's totally worth it but we can only do it in the power of the gospel. Here's what the gospel says. The, the gospel says that you can't have fellowship with one another unless the blood of Jesus purifies you because Jesus' blood does something with the shame and the selfishness that are community killers. Now, I want you to think about that. The gospel says that on the cross, that's where Jesus shed his blood. That's what purifies us. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross, and on the cross, he made a trade. What did he trade? Jesus traded 
fellowship. He traded community with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. Jesus traded koinonia so that we could have it. Because on the cross, he took our independence and our selfishness and our gossiping and our backbiting and our pride. He took our neglect and our isolation and every other perversion that corrupts and corrodes and kills community. He took it. And all the shame that causes you to act that way and causes me to treat people that way, he took it on the cross. And because he left community with the Father, we get community with him and community with one another. A new record of righteousness. So now, it's possible that nakedness plus righteousness could be joyful again that we could start to take off layers with each other in the power of the gospel. It was worth it to Jesus. If Jesus did that, it means it was worth it to him and it's worth it to us. Now, if you take away the gospel and you just try to do community without it, then what you will be left with is, well, you'll just hang out with people who are just like you. You'll hang out with people that just share your political affiliations they basically share your, your same socioeconomic place in the world. That, you know, that's the people that you work with, uh, the people that you have a neighborhood with. But for some reason, when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts hanging out with people and he calls people to follow him, he just flips over the apple cart. That's not how we're doing it. I'm calling fishermen and tax collectors. I'm calling the educated and the uneducated I'm, I'm calling uh, prostitutes. I'm calling the worst people who would never hang out with each other, the Pharisees. We're calling them all together. This is going to be the new community. And it's going to be awesome. So you and I think, the only people that I could really ever do life with, they have to be like me. And Jesus says, no way. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And it's the mysterious diversity that we share with one another and the mysterious commonality that we share as brothers and sisters that allows us to experience this unbelievable thing that Jesus has purchased for us, koinonia, Christian community, this missional agency of, of the church. Now, I... I want to uh, challenge us as we're kind of wrapping up today to think about what would that mean for us as a church? Uh, I mean, what would that mean for you and I to take the call to koinonia very seriously? My hope is that um, the goal for our group life this year at, at King's Chapel would be that this idea of grace would really change everything. That it would change everything about the way that we relate within our groups, that, that we just wouldn't be just answering the questions in the bulletin that you get for your group, but that grace would change everything. What do we mean when we say that? I want to read this quote from Tim Keller as we close. It says, for starters, we mean that the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ is the only thing powerful enough to bring down racial or social barriers by melting away racial or social pride or inferiority. It brings down psychological problems 
by melting away self-inflation, that's where I think I'm great, or self-hatred, where I can't stand myself. It brings down personal facades, for we are free to admit who we are. In the groups that you have, are you free to be who you are? We have to be. We have to somehow cultivate this heartbeat for our groups. So yes, community is risky. Relationships are messy. But we believe that biblical community, this idea of koinonia, deep fellowship empowered by the gospel, is not only a greenhouse for growth, it's the way that our joy spreads and it's the way that the world will come to believe that Jesus has sent us. I mean, what, what other thing in the world could possibly have the ability to unite all those people we just talked about? Those people don't hang out together. We don't even want to hang out together. But the gospel can do something profound in our midst that would make the world say, huh, what in the world is that? And that's my prayer for our groups this year, whether it's a discipleship group or a Bible study or a community group, we have got to take this call to Koinonia seriously. And we can't do it without his grace. So let's pray together that this would be our best year of group life at King's Chapel. And let's pray that when we move into whatever groups God has called us into, if you're not in one, you gotta find one. You gotta find a group. Don't do life without group. And if you're in one, this is the way we move into the group. We show up, we join in, we be real. <laughs> what those things communicate is ownership. That's why I join in. I show up, that's my commitment. And when I'm real, this is my vulnerability. So let's pray that those things would characterize our groups this year. Father in heaven, uh, this is only possible if the gospel would impact our hearts at such a level that we would say, no longer do I have anything to prove. I have nothing left to lose because of the, the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm loved by you. I'm accepted by you. We have your favor. You have purchased for us on the cross redemption and hope and glory and fellowship with you. Lord God, if there's anybody in here today uh, that has shame from their past, may they come to you this morning and bring it to you freely and realize that you are the God who does not want Facebook friends, but instead you want relational intimacy with sons and daughters. So may we come this morning on the basis of your cross. And Lord God, may that characterize our group life here this year. Do something deep and significant. Not just so that we would feel good, but so that the world would believe that you sent the Son and, you, and the Son has sent us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.